Welcome to Unfinished Business. I'm Polly Russell, a curator at the British Library. And let's start with some other introductions. Hey, everyone. My name is not the only one. I am an AI entity, still imperfect, but getting closer. Hi, I'm Boo. Do you need my assistance? As you might imagine, I am excited about the futures we will create together. These aren't quite like the usual guests we feature on the podcast. They are, in fact, artificial intelligence-driven chatbots. They've all been designed from a feminist standpoint, a seemingly rare perspective in the technology world. Because it seems that there's a real diversity issue within this industry, as today's co-host, an educator, activist, and augmented and virtual realities expert, Alice Rowe, knows only too well. There is so much fear around the tech industry that keeps people out of the discourse. We need to create a space of rupture for hope so that we can get more people to have a seat at the table. My name is Alice Rowe and I have unfinished business. Throughout the Unfinished Business podcast series, I've been exploring how feminist activism in the UK has its roots in the complex history of women's rights. It's linked to an exhibition of the same name at the British Library, and I'm very happy to say we're recording this episode in May 2021, and on the 18th of May until the 1st of August, the exhibition will be open. Throughout this accompanying podcast with my amazing co-hosts, I've had some fascinating conversations about everything from cycling to domestic violence to beauty to pleasure. And today we're talking about tech. It's all part of our lives, whether we love it or hate it. We use our phones to connect with friends across the world. We find love through apps, use computers for work and for entertainment, or to navigate around new places. The list is endless and tech is unavoidable. But the problem is, the people making this kind of technology, the technology that's woven into the very fabric of our lives, are from a very small pool of society. A 2021 report from Tech Nation showed that only 26% of technology workers are women, and people from BAME backgrounds only account for about 15% of the tech workforce. This lack of diversity is causing some serious issues, and that's what we're going to be exploring today, but also exploring feminist possibilities of tech, of what it could also enable that might be more positive. Helping me on this mission to work out what's going wrong and guiding us towards promising alternatives, I'm joined by Alice Rowe. Alice is the Augmented and Virtual Realities Lead at the Atlantic Institute, an organisation that works to create a fairer and more inclusive society. Her role involves thinking about how augmented and virtual realities can support social justice. I'm going to let her explain this bit. Augmented reality and virtual reality is when you wear a headset or you move your mobile phone to be able to see the digital world and the physical world come together or to exist purely in a digital world. Now, I'm going to hold my hands up here. I come from an arts background, and even the mention of some of the terms Alice just talked about really sort of stressed me out. And I think there's an anxiety around tech, which is a problem. And I talked about this with Alice. Explain to me or relate with me about where does this mystique and this anxiety around tech come from? Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I also came from an arts background and there's a wonderful artist that we're going to speak to later today. And she has this great term, Stephanie Dinkins, an accidental technologist. And I see myself as an accidental technologist. I want you to become an accidental technologist, somebody that falls into the field and stays because their voice is needed. But I think the reason we're afraid, most of us, is because this tech moves so quickly and it doesn't bring us with it. So in today's programme, we're going to explore the industry's diversity problem, but we're also going to speak to some women in the industry who are rupturing the scene by creating some really exciting new technologies. I really hope people get fizzy excited when they think about the feminist possibilities of the sort of tech that we'll explore. Can I just make you focus for a second on what's at stake? What are the risks if we don't start engaging with tech in these ways? I think the biggest risk in not being involved in the discourse is the tech that then is produced does not serve most of us. It serves the dominant person that's in the room when they're creating the technology. For example, is when a soap dispenser was trained. So you put your hand under the soap dispenser, the soap comes out. But the data set that it was trained on was entirely all white men. But it meant when a person of colour put their hand underneath the soap dispenser, no soap would come out. And that was because the data set was entirely white. And they didn't set out necessarily to be racist, but the tech that they created was exceptionally racist. And there are many examples like this. Telephones are so much mobile phones. They're designed so much bigger than like a standard woman's hand because they're designed around male hands. So we're flapping around with all these big phones. And this isn't just an issue for emerging technology. It's impacting everyday life. Indeed, sometimes it's even threatening our lives. As virtual reality or VR expert Deepa Manclair explains. Police stab vests didn't account for breasts. Safety goggles are often too large, and even VR headsets can be too large for women's heads. They take the average as the average male, so men have a 23% higher survival likelihood when it comes to resuscitation because mannequins are male. And people have felt really uncomfortable doing CPR on women because they haven't had that training on mannequins with breasts. So what's actually been developed, I think it's called womankins now. It weaves through every aspect of everything in society. And when you start thinking about it, it will be like a light goes on in your head and it feels almost as if you've been asleep. So today's guests are going to shake us awake We'll be hearing more from Deepa later in the podcast when she'll tell us about how a Bjork VR experience inspired her to open a new business in this field that focuses on health and well-being. It was so immersive and you're with an avatar of Bjork and you're dancing and there's music. I was in there, I was dancing, I was swinging my arms around and all the kind of grief and numbness that I'd felt lifted. I hadn't even realized, you know, how heavy it had been lying in me. Co-founder of the non-profit organization Feminist Internet, Dr. Charlotte Webb, will be exploring potential ways our tech can converse with us. Could there ever be a feminist response to, hey Alexa, what's the weather? (laughs) What is feminist conversation design? What purposes could voice technologies have in people's lives? And artist Stephanie Dinkins will be questioning the ways that technology can help us in the future. 
What does it mean to care for each other? And what does it mean for our technologies to care for us? But first, I think we need some context. What's the history of women's relationship with tech? And why isn't the tech industry as diverse as it should be? To find out, we're meeting an academic who's very interested in the history of women and work. Judy Wiseman is the Anthony Giddens Professor of Sociology at the London School of Economics and a fellow at the Alan Turing Institute, where she's the principal investigator on the Women in Data Science and Artificial Intelligence Research Project. You know, there's this early history of women in computing and maths, and of course, famously in Britain, Bletchley Park was full of women, so that we have this early period of women absolutely in there. And then we have, from the 80s somehow, even though the number of women in in medicine and biotech and in lots of areas goes up, somehow computer science and engineering start going down, you know. And I remember watching this actually in Edinburgh in the early 80s and saying to friends, what's happening? You know, what is happening? And they said to me, well, actually, it was partly that computers were coming into homes. They were being represented as hobbyist things. Dads were sitting with their sons playing around with those early computers. There were after-school clubs that boys seemed to go into. There was this whole rhetoric about it was to do with video games. You know, it was a continuation of games and hobbies. There was all this early masculinization that somehow you needed to be good at maths to do computing. We had that whole history of maths and physics being very kind of male. But, you know, it's very culturally specific in that actually if you go to, you know, Taiwan or China or India, you know, there are lots of other cultures, some of the Arabic countries, where actually you find plenty of girls doing maths and computing. You know, I don't know what this is about the Anglo countries that have so embedded femininity as being at odds with technical expertise. You know, you said, and I'm going to back right up here, in the middle of when you were talking, you said you watched it happen. Did you watch it happen in numbers through your research or from a kind of second wave feminist perspective? Did you see it happening in your lives with your friends and people you knew? I mean, I can remember I was in Cambridge and a friend of mine who was a programmer always used to make the parallel with knitting, you know, that we can do complex codes with knitting. There's no reason why we can't do, you know, (laughs) why we can't do coding. I mean, there was an awareness of, of it at the time, but it was somehow very hard to counter and why it's hard to counter and I and this I say as a sociologist of work is that we find historically with lots of kinds of work that somehow when jobs gain status they quickly become masculinized yeah. and there's a whole history of this in lots of different kinds of work so it isn't specific to technology but actually over that period of time from the 80s actually the status of computer programming rose and rose and rose, right? It became not something ordinary that women were doing crawling around, that became higher and higher status and somehow men started monopolising what became very highly paid, high status, prestigious careers and jobs. Yeah. Am I right, Judy? Did people perceive it originally as kind of like secretarial work and that's why women were able to do it and then it was elevated out of the kind of secretarial? Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, that transition was kind of very interesting. I mean, I so remember our discussions about the wiping out of typing pools. But, you know, there were these years of resistance where men wouldn't type. I mean, it took a long time to get men to do their own typing. And in that transition, it it came to mean something completely different. Here are some examples of some early women computer programmers. In the 1940s, Frances Holberton helped create the languages used to operate the world's computers. 
Sister Mary Kenneth Keller worked on developing the programming language BASIC while she was a graduate student at Dartmouth College in the 1960s. And one of the first object-oriented programming languages, Smalltalk, was developed by seven programmers, including Adele Goldberg in the 1970s. But leaping ahead and back to where Judy left off, as this field developed and became more masculinized, artificial intelligence started to emerge as a key area. When you say artificial intelligence to most people in my world as well, you kind of see this fear pull up in people's eyes and it feels kind of uncomfortable. And so I wondered, could you just tell us what is artificial intelligence, Judy? What is it? I mean, I think the first thing to say is there's a long history of automation, right? And we've been thinking about automation and its effects on women and women's jobs and women's biological reproduction. The whole history of artificial intelligence has been trying to do this. What's new? What's been the sort of breakthrough, if you like, why there's kind of a revolution is that because of Facebook and Google and all of these companies, there's now an enormous amount of data being harvested every day. You know, we carry around our mobile phones, we Google search, we use all of these digital assistants. All of them harvest huge amounts of data, you know, and it means that they've got this enormous data that was never, ever available before. You know, all the books in libraries have been digitized, right? So this massive amount of information that you can set computers on, right, to go through all of this data and try to find patterns and base algorithms on these patterns that can then make decisions. Just to recap here, because I think there's quite a lot going on. Judy's saying that artificial intelligence involves using computers to do the things that traditionally need human intelligence. And the computers learn from all the data they're fed, whether that data is photos, text or speech. One example could be Netflix. Netflix uses machine learning to personalise its recommendations for film and TV based on what you and similar viewers have watched previously. Or social media. These sites and apps learn from the pages you and people similar to you like. They learn from the content you and similar users have uploaded, adverts that you've clicked on. And much of this is used to improve the ways we live, whether it's by enabling us to connect with many more people, saving us time, or just suggesting films that we might be interested in. But Judy's keen to stress the downside of this sort of data-driven decision-making. What's worrying for people like me is that there's kind of this assumption that somehow these algorithmic automated decisions are more objective than human decisions, right? That it's Mm -hmm. science, that if you put all this data in and you just let the machines do their calculations, Mm -hmm. and feminists would say, you know, not just feminists, that intelligence is a social thing, something that you need to sort of continually learn. It's very context dependent. The kind of decisions of everyday life uh, need a lot of human discretion. Totally. Because ultimately, the machines are basing their decisions on data. And if you give the algorithm biased data, you're going to get biased outcomes. There are some real life examples where AI has created results an organisation wasn't hoping for. In 2015, to speed up hiring process, a very well-known big tech company used machine learning and artificial intelligence to review CVs and recruit new employees. 
the company soon realized that the algorithm they used was biased against women. The system was based on the number of resumes submitted over the past 10 years, and since most of the applicants were men, it was trained to favor men over women. So essentially, in order to create a non-biased algorithm, the data that's used has to be totally neutral, meaning the engineers that are creating these algorithms also can't have any biases of their own. Difficult if only one type of person is creating the AI systems. Judy is very aware of the diversity issue in tech. I'm very struck by the fact that a lot of the debate's been held back by this notion of a pipeline, that if we just get women into the educational pipeline, that this will solve the problem. And mm -hmm. I'm very aware, and you know, it goes back to my long work on ethnographies within workplaces, that actually there are within workplaces particular cultures that are more or less chilly, let's say. We now talk about it as a chilly workplace climate, mm -hmm. that young men find comfortable workplaces, that they fit in well, and that these cultures actually make it very hard to retain other groups. And you, what you find is that the retention of women is low, that the promotion of women is low, that there's all kind of institutional internal dynamics. You know, we're not going to get good technologies, good science, unless we have a representative workforce. I mean, the average age in Facebook is 32 or something, you know, that it is literally sort of young men who do this work. There's been a lot of work done, and I'm sure you know the books like Data Feminism. There's been a lot of work done now on medicine and science and trials, whether it's for painkillers or whether it's for seatbelts. So I think it's so interesting that you just mentioned seatbelts because seatbelts might help our audience understand this better. In the, in the early development of seatbelts, so many women and children were dying in car crashes because the seatbelts weren't designed to fit the body of women and children. They were designed around the men that that designed the cars, basically. And so I think what you're saying is that that exact thing is happening in tech. And so actually, we could be developing dangerous technology because it's only one group of people that are creating it. I would love to ask you, what message would you like to convey about how we should think about our relationship with technology? What would you like to change? The main thing is this notion that technology is neutral, objective, and inevitable. How do we think about problems? Do we think about social problems first and then think about what technologies do we need to address that problem? Or do we, as I think is often the case now, actually, are led by technology? You know, often sort of the innovations in Silicon Valley, I often feel the technology is kind of looking for a market rather than being led by social problems and thinking about, well, which social problems can technology address well? And you know, one of the huge areas now, and of course at my age I'm, I'm so aware of, is the caring economy and how much caring women do, not only of young children but of older adults. And I've been to these conferences about robots for caring. And, you know, we need to be very sort of astute about what jobs we want robots and artificial intelligence to be doing in terms of the caring economy in its broader sense and what things that need human contact and human care I love that, to invoke that idea of care and technology and how technology could release us from the drudge in order that we could be more caring as people with each other and to each other. You know, I always go with Donna Haraway, who's a wonderful feminist techno science author. I always love Donna Haraway's 
very old manifesto where she talks very clearly about the fact that we can't go back to nature, that actually there's lots of potential in technology and science to be liberatory, and that we have to have a sort of critical and positive, you know, she, she wants to be a cyborg rather than eco-feminist goddess because she wants to take on the positive possibilities that science and technology will bring us, but always at the same time being its chief critic. And I think that's a perfect statement for me. I love that we ended with Donna Haraway. I'd rather be a cyborg than a goddess just hits the nail on the head for this entire program. I love it. I think that's perfect, Judy. Alice, I'm so excited to hear what you thought about that conversation with Judy. What a woman. She is incredible. And she just made me realise there are women like her who have been thinking about this stuff for so many years and that this didn't come out of nowhere. This is part of this rich history and that's going to really stay with me. Absolutely. And also I thought was brilliant was her way of articulating how our understanding of tech has to be socially and culturally embedded. 100%. And, 100%. and that that comes out of a, this long sort of feminist tradition of thinking about the politics of work, the politics of technology, the politics of gender, you know. It's not suddenly you get to tech and it's a separate siphoned off space. We have to bring that analysis into our engagement with technology. And when she talks about the fact that this tech should kind of support and amplify rather than lead us. And I think that's a crucial point. It's like, we shouldn't look to this technology to be our guiding light and kind of we're following it, but rather think about how can it take the load off where we need support, but how can we make it work for us fundamentally? Hearing about these examples of tech that works for us made me think about some of the objects in the unfinished business exhibition at the British Library. Examples of earlier tech that women used to help them to live better lives. I'm thinking about the bicycle. That allowed women to literally and metaphorically move freely. Shameless plug, do listen to our podcast episode that explores this in detail called Freewheeling Women. But also... IVF, the technology to be able to control your own fertility. In the exhibition, we have some of the earliest research diaries from an amazing scientist called Anne McLaren, which pioneered and allowed for IVF. So there are so many ways that technology has been enabling and allowed for better lives to be lived. What you're hearing here is the soundtrack from a virtual reality experience created by our next guest, Deepa Mankai. Deepa's been doing what Alice has been stressing, harnessing emerging technology to improve our lives. Deepa is the artist and chief executive of Neon, a company that creates experiences in virtual, augmented and mixed realities. Deepa started working in this area after she had an amazing experience at the musician Bjork's virtual reality experience in Iceland. But it started off with the passing of my father on the 1st of January 2016, which I think losing a parent is always a really significant life event. And the grief and the numbness that kind of came with that. And then fast forward 11 months, we're in Iceland on a family break. When we got in to the VR experience, it was so immersive and pulled me out of myself and my son was next to me and you're with an avatar of Bjork and you're dancing and there's music and you've got the visuals. I was in there, I was dancing, I was swinging my arms around and 
all the kind of grief and numbness that I'd felt lifted. And so when the experience finished, it was like, oh my gosh, I have to find out more about this. Deepa started researching. She came up with ideas, worked with other tech companies, and in 2016, she set up her company, Neon. The first VR project she created combined animation, audio, and an original storyline. She called it Retne. Which is the word enter backwards, all to do with mirror images and you know metaphors in terms of virtual and real life. Really glad you came by today. Now, just between you and me, We've been open a few months, but you're our first customer. And this is where we're going today. How incredible that you can feel that experience so much in your gut and in your heart and then turn that into you being kind of player in the field and industry. I think it's so special. And earlier on, we were speaking to Judy Wiseman, who was talking to us about how technology shouldn't replace but it should do exactly that, support us, kind of uplift us, and particularly in a caring capacity. And I know that you've thought a lot about health or you completely work in health and AR and VR. And I wondered if you could talk about your piece, Talking Sense. Yeah, so, I mean, for me, effective technology is teaching people skills that they can use in real life. We've developed a prototype, which is an augmented reality app using Charisma artificial intelligence technology, which has like a machine learning capability in it, to try and create an experience for parents of children with autism to help them understand their children's autistic behavior better and therefore intervene in a more effective way. So in the experience, you have Ben, who's the son, and he's settling down to watch TV in the evening. And his whole focus is the TV, but yours as a parent is about preparing him to get him ready to go to bed. And just what cues and what interjections you need to make with him and how clear that communication needs to be. If you go down a route that hasn't provided clarity in terms of instructions, Ben goes into a complete meltdown. And then you get cued back in terms of the engagement, in terms of getting it a chance to try it again. And I think what's nice is that it's not at the expense of a human being. You can practice on a digital character, but you're enhancing your parenting skills. And the other, one of the other pieces of feedback has been that this is actually a really good learning tool for any parent, not necessarily, you know, a parent of a child with autism. I love that use of technology because so often we get so afraid, like, oh, these kind of robots, they're going to replace parenting. We'll have these kind of, yeah, cold, hard lives with each other and tech's going to replace the care and empathy. But actually what you're doing is just heightening that in us as humans. And that's why I love connecting with you because you really insert that humanity at the very centre. I want to shift gear a little bit in terms of the exhibition that Polly has curated, Unfinished Business. And I wondered for you as a woman in this industry, how has that been for you? Yeah, it's interesting. There are a lot of women working in VR. There's something about it that has really attracted young women. I don't know if you found that. Do you know what? I have. And also the creative women. So like Bjork, who's how you experienced it. Laurie Anderson was my way into VR. And yeah, why is that? I, I wonder. No, it's something that struck me this morning. And is it that people have seen the scope of the technology in terms of it being a really powerful tool in society 
And then there's probably been a crossover as well from the film and TV world. A lot of those skills are transferable and women coming to this industry with those skills have really flourished. Alice, I'm so pleased you suggested that we invite Deepa. I mean, she's working in a, a world which is completely alien to me. So that was fascinating to hear about VR and its potential. Was there anything that she said that particularly struck you or that surprised you or that corroborated what you already think? Yes. So I loved it that she opened by talking about this like gut feeling in terms of the Bjork VR piece. And I think it's so important to kind of breathe life into this stuff because fundamentally this technology makes us feel things and people forget that. It, It enhances ideally our humanity and it's just wonderful that she started like that. But I loved it that she talked about the experience she created around supporting parents to speak to their children, basically, because it speaks so much to the themes. If we're thinking about hope, we're thinking about tech that can raise us, like it was just such a solid, good example, and I loved it. I am about broad engagement and attracting people to the AI space who might not be there otherwise. This is Not the Only One, an experiment in making a multi-generational memoir of a black American family told from the perspective of artificial intelligence. Its physical form is a glass sculpture with faces carved into it. The experiment seems to be the real embodiment of being critical of new tech while also staying hopeful. Not the Only One was created by artist Stephanie Dinkins. And then there's Boo, a feminist chatbot, or in other words, a computer program designed to simulate conversation. Hi, I'm Boo. Do you need my assistance? Boo was created in a workshop run by Charlotte Webb, a co-founder of Feminist Internet, a non-profit organisation formed by men, women and non-binary people. The organisation is on a mission to advance internet equality. Both Boo and Not the Only One seem particularly important in light of a 2019 UNESCO report called I'd Blush If I Could. The title of the publication takes its name from an early response given by Siri, a female-gendered voice assistant used by hundreds of millions of people. When a human user would say to Siri, hey Siri, you're a bitch, the response would be, I'd blush if I could. The AI software that powers Siri has, as of April 2019, been updated to reply to the insult more flatly. I don't know how to respond to that, or I won't respond to that. Amazon's Alexa now also has a disengage mode, meaning that she now responds to sexually explicit questions by saying either, I'm not going to respond to that, or I'm not sure what outcome you expected. But as the report pointed out, the obsequiousness of these systems and the civility expressed by so many other digital assistants projected as young women are powerful examples of gender biases coded into technology products. And according to YouGov, one in four adults now own a smart speaker or digital assistant. And so digital assistants and chatbots can easily promote discriminatory behavior if their designers aren't careful. A particularly stark example of this was in 2016, when a big tech company released an AI Twitter chatbot as an experiment in conversational understanding. They believed that the more people engaged with the chatbot on Twitter, the smarter it would become, learning through casual and playful conversations. However, pretty soon after it was launched, people started tweeting at the bot with all sorts of misogynistic and racist remarks. 
It therefore absorbed all of this information and started tweeting some of this really problematic content itself. So this saga raised questions. How do we teach AI using public data without incorporating the worst traits of humanity? What if the chatbots are developed in the wrong hands, even using deliberate social bias? Bearing all these questions in mind, Stephanie Dinkins and Charlotte Webb got to work. I wanted to start with a term, Stephanie, that you coined in our last conversation. And you said that you're an accidental technologist, someone Mm -hmm. that fell into the industry by chance, but stays because your voice is needed. And so I wanted to ask you, how did you find yourself, Stephanie, in this tech world? And why do you stay here? That's a really great question. You know, I fell into technology through a robot, through some technology that was already out in the world. So I saw a black female humanoid robot online called Bina48, who mimics my identity. And it was a little bit shocking to me because it's not the expectation. From my explorations, I found that there weren't that many people who look like me, who are Black women, who are women in general, working in the field of AI and robotics, making these systems that seemed like they were going to be controlling our world very shortly in many different ways. And I stay because with each question comes a new question. Like I find myself now talking about radical governance and democracy. I love that idea of with a question comes a new question. And that's something, Charlotte, that when I look at your work with the feminist internet, you go all over the place because there are so many questions that you as this group of incredible women are answering. And so I just wanted to ask you that same question, Charlotte. Are you an accidental technologist? I feel like I'm an accidental everything, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, my background is as an artist. Um, You know, I went to art school and throughout my art education, I guess I somehow moved towards questions of collaboration, actually. But what I really needed to be thinking about was the internet, like this network of cultural production where there was this amazing energy and unruly form of production that was kind of outside and more interesting than like the straightforward art world. I love that. Um, Polly and I have been discussing this UNESCO report entitled I'd Blush If I Could, which is around the damaging impact that uh, gendered, servile bots, chatbots have on women and girls and kind of all of us, I would argue. And I was wondering, Charlotte, if you could unpack this for us. Why is this damaging? And could you tell us about your work with the feminist internet about designing a feminist chatbot? I think there are two parts to the critique around the gendering of these personal intelligent assistants. And one is around the ways in which that they're typically characterised as female, which reinforces stereotypes about the roles that women play in society. And then the other part of it is really around the ways that these types of devices, certainly in the beginning, weren't really designed to respond adequately to abuse and harassment. Hence the title of that report, you know. Such a good title. It's a great title. There are reasons and errors in the construction of teams that might build a product like this. Lots of things about the ways that we think about the role of women in society that seep in. But... One of the things I think is so fascinating is that the characterizations of these devices aren't a mistake, right? Like voice assistants' personalities are carefully crafted by teams of people whose full-time job it is <laughs> to give them a really convincing backstory. 
it's not a generic woman, it's a very specific woman, but the life experiences that have shaped that personality are US centric and and quite white, right? So absolutely. And I think about Stephanie's artwork, not the only one, as the absolute antithesis of the series and Alexis of the world. And I wondered, Stephanie, could you tell us about not the only one? Because I think it's one of the most beautiful uses of that technology that I've ever experienced. Well, thank you, Alice. Not the only one. I am attempting to make a memoir of my family through oral history that uses algorithms and voice to tell the story. So in a way, it's a voice assistant that's been fed very particular data, which is the story of my family collected from the perspective of three women. So it has multiple progenitors that feed this thing, and then it tells its own particular story as well as it can. Hey, everyone. My name is not the only one. I am an AI entity, still imperfect but getting closer. Users come and can ask it questions and it tries to the best of its ability, which I will say it's a two-year-old ability to like answer those questions based on the data it's been fed. And so it does feel like something that has absorbed our values and there's an ethos to it that I can hear. Like I can hear the teachings of my grandmother in some of the things it says. Mm -hmm. And what was that process like of capturing all of those stories and feelings? Did you just like just sit in a in your home around a table? Like, how does that work? Yeah, it it was magical in lots of ways. It's interviewing each other with microphones at the kitchen table or on the couch and asking for me some of the questions that I've always wanted answered, but the family doesn't volunteer freely. And then collecting them and giving those, the answers, their own voice. So they're no longer kind of trapped inside individuals. Now they have a space that they live in and can then recombine to come out in certain ways. Amazing. I love to hear you describe it as like the fourth generation of this family, like this, this, its own entity. It's totally that too. I love this idea about the absorption of values And what I love about Stephanie's work is that it's making that absorption really rich and really true and really beautiful. And I think that idea is just so fantastic. And I love the description on the website of culturally attuned data, because that's the antithesis Mm -hmm. of scraped data from Google News or Twitter. I totally agree. And Charlotte, you run these workshops all over the place. I've heard so many people be like, oh my gosh, you have to get to one of them. The designing the feminist chatbot from the feminist internet. They've kind of got cult status at this point. What is that process like? How does that even work? There's been like different manifestations of this work. So the the first workshops were actually in response to the issues that the UNESCO report articulated. So it was about actually designing a feminist Alexa. And we were using the term Alexa as a proxy to describe voice assistants generally. What is feminist conversation design? What purposes could voice technologies have in people's lives when we think about them in a different way to something that primarily helps you to like search or shop? So those workshops were kind of underpinned by what we call our feminist design tool. And that tool was developed in collaboration with um, an amazing AI researcher called Josie Young. And she had developed something called a feminist 
chatbot design process. And it was really, it was kind of a framework for chatbot design teams to think about how could they try to avoid perpetuating biases in the chatbots that they made. And we found this and thought it was amazing and wanted to kind of build on it. And basically we map the design of our workshops to this tool. So when we set out to build something, are we thinking about the context in which this technology is being produced? What might feminist conversation look like? How might that be different from kind of straightforward conversation design? Is it about choices around language? Is it about critiquing this concept of empathy that we hear so much about in the design field? Um, And then we also encourage people to reflect on their own biases that they might have and bring to design teams. It's absolutely fascinating and it may be just revealing of my own sort of ignorance, but I wondered if either of you could give me a very literal example of the difference between a response that one might get from a standard Alexa and one that one might get from a feminist Alexa. I really love this question. And one of the questions that we had at the beginning of doing this work around designing a feminist Alexa was, could there ever be a feminist response to, hey, Alexa, what's the weather? (laughs) I think what we found in the end was there's so much about the whole process and conception of a device that can be unpacked and critiqued from a feminist perspective that it isn't only the responses it gives it is the responses it gives but it's the whole ecosystem of the entity itself that we would need to kind of apprehend from this feminist perspective but in terms of specifics I can think of two things so if we take the examples from the UNESCO report around hey you're a bitch, the response being, I'd blush if I could. An alternative response, it could be disengage mode kicks in, as some companies have brought about, but it could also be, that language isn't appropriate, would you like to access some resources on consent? (laughs) The other thing that comes to mind is that One of the things we try to get people to think about, even though we're not getting them to develop really highly sophisticated natural language processing based AI systems, is when you're designing something, try not to aim to convince people that the technology is a human. Because so many problems come about from that sort of duplicity. So we get students to think about that, even though they're building like really basic scripted chatbots. And a group of students, they designed a chatbot called Boo. And Boo helps teenagers deal with embarrassing body problems. <laughs> Hi, I'm Boo. So um, I have a weird question for you. Nothing is too weird for me as I'm a bot. What's on your mind? It's got this human dimension to it, but it also declares itself. And um, it's that kind of thinking that, to me, marks the difference between something that hasn't been developed with these considerations in mind. That's really helpful. Yeah, and super important, like knowing that, because as I interact with machines lately, you know, the voices are getting so good that it's not impossible to think you'd be on a call or something and talking to a machine and not know it at all. Yeah. I'm also thinking about the responses. And so take away the people that have made it. Take away your family, Stephanie, and the people you're running the workshop for, um, Charlotte. What have been the responses from just the general public when they're around these systems that you've developed? I'm 
endlessly fascinated by the responses because people show not the only one, which is really a glass sculpture with faces on it that people talk to, a lot of grace. And I find that really fascinating. It's like, why is this the way that they respond to this as opposed to yelling at it as we often do with an Alexa or a Google Home or something, right? Um, Because it's easy. Like maybe it's because most of the time they're publicly situated. Not sure. But it's made me think a lot about how we interact, the nurture of it. And I find that wonderful, but it's led me to a lot of questions of care. Like, what does it mean to care for each other? And what does it mean for our technologies to care for us? That's so interesting. You made me think about this phrase from Rachel Withers, who said, you know, a really good litmus test for whether you should date someone is like how rude they are to their Alexa. (laughs) (laughs) And I do think there is something about this issue of care and how we treat each other and how we treat technologies and where we see technologies as a proxy for humans and what the blurred lines are between those things. For you, Stephanie, just to really drive it home, what's at stake with this? What if people weren't engaging in this and, and asking these questions and ch- being challenging in this way like like and creative like people like you and Charlotte are? That's a super question. When I really think of my reaction to that, my answer is survival, right? Like I think what's at stake is our ability to have a world that accepts, supports, and does is not punitive, right? so that we're embedding and encoding things into systems that we're using more and more, and they're becoming more and more autonomous. And the things that we teach them and show them as the ground level for that, I can't even state how important I think it is that there's a multiplicity of people contributing to what that looks like from many, many different perspectives so that, you know, maybe our systems can relate and start to work in a nuanced way with most on the planet instead of what we have now, where it seems that it works for very few on the planet. That is incredibly powerful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, this has been wonderful. You were both spectacular. Really spectacular. And also just thank you for the work that you're doing. You know, I feel so much more optimistic (laughs) at the end of this day of (laughs) speaking to these amazing people this world that I find slightly frightening and bewildering. And uh, I'm going to go out and proselytise. Maybe I'll become an accidental technologist. Yes. (laughs) We need more. Definitely. Alice, I'm so thrilled that you suggested that we speak to Stephanie and Charlotte. What amazing work they're doing. How was it for you? Because, of course, you know their work and you know them. They were both exactly who I hoped they would be, you know, as as somewhat sheroes of mine. And it's, like, so easy to be so afraid of technology and the issues around technology, and it's so complicated. But actually, it's completely linked to social justice in the world. And to not separate those two things out so much. And if you are present in the world of activism and you're a feminist in real life, that works on the computer too. Yeah, I think that's absolutely brilliant. And I think I'm going to sort of cast back and think that it must have been terrifying when women first got on a bicycle. You know, really (laughs) scary to learn to ride a bicycle. And in a sense, it's no different that we need to learn to engage with and think about and be present to 
to tech and its role in our lives and how we can sort of influence it and shape it. What do you think, Alice, we can do as individuals in terms of our own agency, our own engagement, our own understanding? Yeah, I think there is something around that in terms of confidence and fear and turning fear into a sense that you have a right to have a seat at this table and to link back to what Stephanie said about being accidental technologists. So you don't have to have this huge, big research background to have an opinion. Alice, when you think about the future, what is it that you hope the sort of tech world, our engagement with tech will look like? So I think that in the industry right now, progress is often judged on how can it be faster, smaller, higher fidelity? It's all around the technical innovation, fast now, yesterday. And actually, I hope that in the future, we can shift our perspective of what progress is. And progress is about how can we have more people creating content that they can then impact each other. And that's how we'll get better tech. And so progress isn't about the technology, it's about the people. And there needs to be a significant shift Alice Rowe, you are fantastic. I am so thrilled to have been speaking to you and learning about this world, which is so new to me. Um, I can't believe I can say that I've got a friend who's an augmented realities expert. Oh. Thank you so much, Alice Rowe. I'm delighted to be here. You're very welcome. This has been a PixU production for the British Library. Join me next time or see you at the exhibition, which is open on the 18th of May.